0: I'm Evelyn Glennie, and you're listening to The Evelyn Glennie Podcast. There's no doubt that Britain has produced her fair share of world-class conductors over the years, and that mantle continues to well and truly brightly shine through the extraordinary talents of my guest today, Nicholas Collin. I say extraordinary, but also daring, because Nicholas is the founder and principal conductor of the Aurora Orchestra. Well perhaps nothing too unusual there, you might say, but when you see a group of musicians performing the likes of a Beethoven symphony standing up, and each member playing the whole score by memory, well that is astonishing. And it somehow morphs the listening skills of the audience and musicians in a subtly different way. But why? We're used to seeing classical and contemporary soloists and rock, folk, jazz, and many more musicians perform without looking at the dots, but not whole orchestras. So all I can say is, let's get listening. Hi, Nick. May I call you Nick?
1: Please, only my mother calls me Nicholas, so I'd <laughs> love to be Nick. Yeah.
0: <laughs> when she's angry.
1: Yeah, oh, no, in all all occasions actually, yeah.
0: <laughs> well I'm looking at your wonderful bookcase behind you there, and I'm assuming that's full of
1: music scores. It is. Music scores, books about music. Um yeah, I I I love it. I mean it's it's a conductor's um sort of fetish, isn't it? Collecting oh. music scores.
0: It, it is. So you don't use um, uh, an iPad or whatever for, for reading your scores, do you?
1: No, I don't at all. And actually, as much as I value that idea going forward, there is something so gorgeously wonderful and tactile about the printed show. I know I will never... Get rid of that. I can imagine a world. It was funny, in fact, you were talking about memor- <laughs> memorization. That's exactly what we've done. We've got rid of the tactile score sitting in front of us. So I've just contradicted myself. But um, you know what I mean.
0: I do. And I suppose it's more also, well, I know my own case. I, I'm a great um, scribbler. On the music, and it's quite interesting, looking back, you know, from 20 years ago, even 30 years ago, of some of the things I may have written in the music. Um, it could be, uh, you know, from a percussionist's point of view, sticking you know right hand, left hand or various musical thoughts or the setups of the the instruments and things like that, and how they've changed over the years. Is that something that you've done with your scores and you know writing little ideas or, or things like that?
1: It, yeah, uh, conductors really vary in what they write into their scores and, and there's whole different trains of thoughts on it. You'll see some, I mean, if you go back and look at William Mengelberg's scores of Mahler, so this would be very beginning of the 20th century, they are littered with instructions to the point where you can't actually see the notes. And then you get some conductors, uh, I mean, I one of my... Um, great teachers mark elder he used to say to me you know stop putting things in your scores they're just what we called i, I can't remember what he called it something like stupid markings you know uh, and and that's because lots, lots of conductors you you put a little ring around a horn entry when it comes in in order to say horn entry well it says horn entry anyway why are you putting that you know it's it's just a sort of um it's some kind of safety net for you as a conductor. And I have to say, when I look back at scores that I marked up 10 years ago and I've not touched since, uh, it's a little bit like hearing your voice, you know, that horrible um, feeling of, of shame at what you used to do, you know, <laughs> ideas about this or that analogy or metaphor. And you think, oh God, what, what was I thinking 10 years ago? And you're completely yeah. different now. So I don't actually like it very much. <laughs>
0: well i don't know i i remember working with um, the wonderful polish conductor jerzy mazymuk and he was he was amazing because his scores became almost art pieces he would take big felt pens of of um, orange and pink and purple and things like that and and as you say you could barely see the notes but it was very powerful but I wonder that when you know in the heat of the performance you know when when nerves can play a part and and therefore affects maybe your eyesight or whatever it might be you know whether these markings actually do become quite helpful in the end.
1: I've done some pieces where I need it. I've done Uh, I did a premiere by, well I say a premiere by Messiaen, that's a very funny thing to say, a little piece that he wrote which was never published or orchestrated and it was incredibly difficult. It had about 200 tempo changes in four minutes and I needed a system of colours because it was so quick to, um, I guess, just give me very quick visual cues and Mm I'm very grateful that I did that because I've managed to get through it, and it was the most stressful thing I've ever done. But uh, the thought of marking up, say, a score of Beethoven's with lots of colours and you know, whatever stick in notes, like some people do, that seems almost like blasphemy to me because there's just a beautiful nakedness about those scores. You don't. It's almost like you're putting something on top of the composer, and I don't particularly like that. So little little bits of pencil marking to show me the way sometimes.
0: And it might be that um, perhaps conductors in 100 or 200, 300 years' time will view the Messian score as perhaps similar to a Beethoven score
1: and think, oh, how dare
0: you write anything on that score?
1: (laughs) Well, by which point they'll all be on their iPads, definitely. I'm I'm sure they will.
0: They they will be. (laughs) They will be. So how has this whole lockdown period been for you from a creative point of view?
1: Well... I I mean I've been very very lucky. I've got three small children and Ooh. as a conductor we don't get very much time at home and that's you know one of the great compromises of a of a conducting career. I'm usually away at least half the year in uh, abroad. And that's really hard with children and and a, a long suffering wife. So uh actually it has been a really wonderful time within the context of you know the terrible nature of what it is it has been a really wonderful time for me to spend with my family and um there's been a, you know it's a very intense environment and particularly during lockdown it was but uh you have to hang on to that and lots of people who've been very lonely during lockdown and i feel very much for them because it, it you know makes it intensifies that loneliness if you are alone for example um I'd like to see an end to it, certainly. I'm feeling a real pull of disturbed creativity. You know, I'm desperate to um, conduct more than I am. I'm very lucky, theoretically, tomorrow I should be going to Finland uh, to conduct some concerts there. And I've had some projects in the last couple of months, a BBC proms and a project in the Netherlands. So I am able to conduct and I have got theoretically, again, some projects in the pipeline in the next few months. I'm supposed to be quite busy, but you know, who knows what will happen to all of them. And that's rather disturbing because as a conductor, it's I'm sure the same as a soloist for you, particularly with repertoire coming up, you sort of want to be able to plan when you're learning, what you're learning, how you're preparing for it. And you don't know if all those projects are going to happen or not. It's, It's quite difficult.
0: It is difficult and and I think it does affect the fluidity of your creativity. I mean certainly, I have found that um with the diary having basically evaporated um, as regards to the concerts, you know it suddenly completely threw a different emphasis as regards to how you see yourself as a player. You know, you're used to preparing a piece, as you say, for 7.30 on a particular date, and, and there you have it. But but actually not knowing means that there really has to be this impetus to, to get into your practice room and think, right, what am I going to practice? You know, so what is going to be the most valuable thing to do at this point in time? And in my own case, I found that um, uh, I suppose this is maybe... Easier to do being a percussion player, but uh, from the start of lockdown, uh, so each month I'd give myself the challenge of learning uh, a new instrument or an instrument that I wouldn't ordinarily play. So the first month happened to be the Irish Boron, um, the wow. second month was the uh, Indian Kanjira, little hand drum uh, instrument the uh, next month it might have been the, the bones and the spoons. Now all <laughs> of those things you know seem quite fun but actually it's amazing how it's introduced me to lots of different types of music and also been aware of how the techniques have evolved from perhaps 30 years ago and it's also using different muscle groups um, you know within the body and and so I think I've gained a bigger connection with the instruments perhaps more than music and I wonder if you have sort of delved into certain types of music that because you've maybe had the time although with three young children I probably it, but you know something that unexpected perhaps has happened to you.
1: Yeah it's an interesting point um I wish, you know, at the beginning of lockdown, I thought, well, maybe I'm going to sort of learn finish or something. Or, uh, you know, those those long term projects that you always want to do, particularly as a conductor, because uh, unlike you, I I suppose we don't have the immediate medium of an instrument that makes a sound. So there are many more diverse things that go into being a conductor. It's not we don't make a sound. It's it's more about a, a wider, you know, Um, cohesive whole of of music, I guess. Um, What I have really enjoyed doing, and and this has actually just been because I've had the breathing space in terms of learning repertoire to do, is is enjoy some of those long-term projects about actual repertoire. And and they're things that I have, you know, always wanted to, to do and find the space. But the problem is, as a conductor, you're quite often learning music on on a strict timetable for the next few months, the next years, you know, you have everything plotted out in front of you, often for two, three years. And within that space, uh, that diary, you may have only one little slot where you could have any breathing space because otherwise you have to learn a Mahler symphony or you have to learn whatever. And these things take a huge amount of time. Um, So what I have actually really enjoyed doing was listening, sitting down with scores to music that I know I want to do conduct at some point, or maybe even not in my life. And I don't know, you know, and there's so much music that partly some of it is our guilty music, you know, that music (laughs) that as a conductor, I really should have listened to, you know. Uh, (laughs) And and it's funny when, when there's, you see other people's, Oh, God. no, it's too embarrassing. I mean, other conductors, uh, actually, I was pleased to see Simon Rattle said, I think last year on his guilty list was, was Elijah. I think Mendelssohn's oh, oh. Elijah, a piece he'd never heard before, you know, um, and it's music like that where you think, well, how, how have you got through so long without hearing it? And then you think, well, quite easily, because, you know, there's thousands of pieces of music. And, uh, okay, I'll give you a few. I mean, um, where, where do we start? okay. To be honest, Mahler's Third Symphony, not Ooh. a piece I've really ever, ever got to know before. I've conducted one movement of it quite a lot. Um, yeah. uh, various Bruckner symphonies, um, Sibelius's Fourth Symphony, you know, yeah. the list, the list goes on. The music that I've just uh, bypassed for some reason. Uh, I still, I, I didn't actually listen to it yet, but I hardly know the Messiah at all. You oh, know, I've hardly ever listened Hardly, I don't. I know various choruses from from it. Um, Apologies, that's that's my doorbell. Um, Yes, Huddles beside. I hardly know any of it, Uh, and and that's quite embarrassing because I was brought up in the British choral tradition, and it's a a piece that everybody seems to know and do. And and there, there it is. There's a guilty admission, but. Well, what? I remember I remember playing the the timpani
0: part to that as a student about a hundred times. So, um, right, I you can make I up do, for it. <laughs> I do know it quite well. but...
1: <laughs> well, come on, Evelyn. What's you must have a guilty. <laughs> do you have a guilty uh, secret?
0: Oh, um, I'm not sure if I do because I'm actually a, a a small listener of music because I appreciate music by seeing it, and uh, so I. Think Possibly, I've enjoyed getting into much more ethnic types of music during this whole lockdown period, which you'd expect a percussion player anyway to do. But but actually, because my emphasis has been on solo work, um, it's been trying to get the repertoire, as you well know, and and we can talk a little bit about our collaboration um, with Michael Doherty's Second Percussion Concerto. But um, I think it's given me a chance to... uh, I think connect, as I say, with the instruments more. And so this isn't a guilty pleasure, but one of the things I've been trying to do is catalogue all of the instruments in the collection. And it's allowed me to sort of look at a cajon, for example, you know, box type Mm -hmm. of of, of drum, wooden drum, and uh, and get into a lot of information about it that I hadn't actually realised before. And then uh, look at a lot of players playing it, then different approaches, different tools that are used on it, and all of this kind of thing. So this one instrument might have taken me a whole week or a fortnight or or whatever to just catalogue, because I've kind of been keen to, to, to explore it a bit more. And so from that point of view, I felt like a student again, and it's just been absolutely wonderful. So I guess it's some been a really nice distraction from thinking, oh, what should I practice, you know, repertoire wise and and mm. so on, because so much of the repertoire that was uh learnt and and prepared for the concerts at the beginning of lockdown were suddenly out of the diary mm. and and not being put back in. So you actually find yourself spending weeks and weeks and weeks, months and months and months, you know, preparing something, learning something and it's just gone, you know. So you've got to get over that hurdle and, and think positively and, and, you know, not think, oh, well, that was a waste of time or something. Actually, really see, well, no, it wasn't a waste of time because from that you were able to develop X, Y, or Z. So it's like I haven't answered your question. I, I realise mm. that. Um, You're not going to give me uh, Elijah, but... <laughs> no, know actually. Um, I think, I mean, there are, dare I say... Quite a lot of percussion repertoire written by percussion players um, that was really necessary to do at the beginning of, of exploring solo percussion. Um, but certainly those pieces are definitely, you know, in the in the dungeons right now and, and hopefully yeah. wouldn't see the light of day. Um, <laughs> so I think historically, you know, we're forgiving in some in some respects, but <laughs> but yeah, no, it's interesting. But you've got three young children and and I know that you started music, you know, at a at a young age, and is this something that, that is naturally happening with your own children where they're exposed to music and, and are you finding that they're, you know, in their own natural way beginning to de- delve into it? Or are they saying
1: absolutely <laughs> not at this point they're um, to be a
0: car mechanic?
1: Uh I'm not sure they would describe it as a natural process, but um <laughs> they are yes, by hook or crook they are Certainly, within the world of music, I of course I have no idea how that will pan out, in no. in a way, I hope they do something else. But um, it's uh, they've all been exposed to it a lot, and 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 it's you know certainly opened my eyes to the easiness with which children can be exposed to music. Because actually, you know, funnily enough, a lot of my children's exposure was through listening and watching, and it wasn't even to me playing an instrument or my wife who's a flute player playing her instrument it would be things like watching an orchestra on youtube or listening to a a, something on, on you know a cd or whatever uh and um no i mean i i love it because it's it's sharing music with them and it's wonderful to see how that develops in them and yeah with with zachary who's the oldest he's seven we've um he plays the violin and the piano and, Mm. and I do, I spend a lot of time with him, you know, every day we, we do a bit of both. And again, that's been a wonderful positive of lockdown because it's, it's, um, well, it's, it's a real responsibility, isn't it? Teaching a child an instrument. He's got teachers on, on both instruments, but um, I help him with his, his practice and it's, it's great fun. You know, sometimes hard, but, but uh, mostly great fun.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, you went through the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain as a viola player. I think I'm right in, in saying are? that. And um, and of course, now, as we're experiencing and negotiating this whole lockdown period with social distancing and, and orchestras uh, or the larger orchestras not necessarily being able to come together in the normal situation. I mean, if you can cast your mind back, um, you know, to being in the n y o if that had had to be socially distanced or if it had to be smaller, or I wonder and it 's probably impossible to answer this, but how that might have impacted you know your whole journey or appreciation of music making
1: I would say you know again, another reason why I feel lucky is because I am um well in my late thirties. I think for the generation of kids and students, university students, people in the NYO, whatever, it's so disruptive and so awful and such a tragedy. I've gone through that period and I, I enjoyed those few years in the NYO immensely. And for someone to have ripped, well, not someone, but a virus, you know, to mm-hmm. have ripped away two, three courses um, from those very intense years, it's a tragedy it really is yeah. and to see students going to university and missing out on whole terms of education maybe more it's it's i can't you know put it into words and actually mm-hmm. we're very lucky being at a, a more advanced stage where in, in some ways it matters less i mean you know yeah. it matters for other reasons but uh, so i think we need to do everything we can to make it up to that generation actually and of course all organizations are doing all they can uh, and now, young people are so good at being connected on on social media and you know they, 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 are. they, they find ways don 't they but nothing replaces being together, social mm. contact and live live music making in our field and, and it's it 's very sad
0: yeah yeah it 's interesting, and I wonder that you know you started or, or maybe I should clarify. Because when you you were a, a, a member of the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain, I mean, had you imagined forming your own orchestra at that time, at that age? You know, was something bubbling in your mind as nope. you were playing there, <laughs> or, or no? So you had had you the vision of being a conductor even? Or
1: absolutely, yeah. From uh, the age of of um, quite young, so probably ten. 11. Mm. Uh, conducting was certainly a thing, but um, no, I never thought about forming an orchestra. And to be honest, it was um, more the idea of my colleague. Well, in fact, he was in the NYO with me then, uh, Robin Ticciati, who's another conductor who went to the same college at Cambridge. And it was more his idea to actually form Aurora. So we ended up doing it together when we left Cambridge. Um, and and then he left Aurora after a couple of years two thousand and six um, so it became my baby on it on my own um but no it was it was a, a sudden sort of impulse upon leaving the security of of a music degree at, at, at university and um thank goodness it happened it was a wonderful new adventure
0: incredible and and at the time, why did yourself and Robin feel that there was a need for another orchestra. Britain has got so many orchestras and chamber orchestras and various groups of one sort or another. So why another? What, what did you think was needed? Why would this be different?
1: Well, funny enough, when we started it in 2004, I feel as if there had been another spate of groups in the 1960s and 70s. And, and actually not so many institutions had grown up in the previous 10 20 years since we started there have been an awful lot actually there's a lot of new new groups around um but it felt like there was a need for something new and fresh and our particular generation of players from the nyo and university and royal academy and royal college they, they were really really special actually there were some very special solo players and and we just thought well, wouldn't it be fun to put on some concerts and see what happens? And it it didn't really have particularly grand aspirations or a, a sort of very clear raison d'être. We just knew we wanted to put on music. It was very, well, it was quite arrogant in a way. I guess it was just the the, the thought of you know let's put on a concert, and people will turn up. I'm sure.
0: <laughs> but I think that's really interesting because, as you say, it you, it is almost an arrogant. Uh, attitude that's needed in order to, to you know, deal with not just the the musical aspects, but everything else that goes along with that, because it's an enormous learning curve, you know, it it, it really is. But when the spirit of the players all come together and they're all you know absolutely hungry for something different, it becomes just a, a, a an extraordinary kind of fireball then. But with the idea of um, for example, standing up to play, you know I mean there are one or two other ensembles, smaller ensembles who who do that i mean i I've worked a lot with Robin's brother Hugo, and uh with his wonderful uh, string quartet and and string orchestra o, o modernt and uh and it's incredible that the energy when players stand, it's a very different kind of presence to the music. Did you start off by asking the players to stand or was this just something that evolved or or do you mix the situation depending on the repertoire?
1: Standing up came along with memorising, which was something we first did in 2014 as part of the BBC Proms. Um, and that felt like a natural part of the presentation of a memorised piece. And that constitutes... I don't know, less than 50% of our activity. So we still sit uh, a lot and we still play with sheet music a lot. Um, and, and the work that we do is is quite diverse and some of it will be con- com- complicated contemporary music and we won't go near memorising it. But um, I certainly feel when we do play for memory and the players are standing up, it's uh, a completely different vibe within the group it's a different communication with the audience and with ourselves as well uh and i love it and actually quite a few groups now stand up as well i mean it certainly wasn't us that, that did it you know for the first time um quite a few period instrument groups do it uh and and i think people appreciate the difference actually that that it makes and the vitality that you feel And players usually love it. I've done it with a few more, shall I say, traditional symphony orchestras who had never stood up
0: before. That's good to ask Uh, that, actually. And, and,
1: you know, a couple of them have needed uh, sort of union meetings and uh, various, you know, year-long discussions and conferences to decide whether it's acceptable. Because it is a big deal. And people, you know, with a young group, you remember, of course, that people uh perhaps find it less tiring um it is occasionally a a tiring thing to rehearse and and to perform like that um you know as a conductor i sometimes feel standing at you get to (laughs) the end of an hour and a half long symphony and you're quite happy to sit down um so uh yeah that's a really interesting thing we've i've done it with a few um you know more traditional symphony which is and the players uh they're nearly unanimously not unanimously but nearly have said that's incredible the difference it makes you feel well younger about the others, it makes you feel like a, a totally different being
0: i think it that's it, it, so interesting that you say that because um what i find watching um the musician's standing is that, A, you can see the power of the whole body in the sound. Um, you really can. And there seems to be this united kind of force because people have the freedom to move that whole body. And again, from a visual aspect, you feel almost as though the instrument is, is an extension of their limbs rather than having the chair as part of that, you know, set up, really, um, mm. It's a very odd thing, and, and, you know, it's hard to describe, but it definitely seems to influence the, the giving of the sound. Um, it, it really does. It's just a different energy.
1: I mean, the interesting thing for you, of course, is that you're the one instrument in the symphony orchestra that does stand up. <laughs> most,
0: um, of <laughs> most
1: of the time. Most of the time. Not as a timpanist, perhaps, um, although some do. But, but mm. w- what I love, actually, when I look at orchestral percussionists, Um, particularly percussionists, I think, is it must be part of your training to stand really well. And because you do it all the time, they generally, on the whole, look good when they stand because they understand about the need of, as you say, if you're going to do a cymbal crash, and that's basically all all you're going to do for an hour and a half, um, you have to have the ability to put all your body and your physicality into it. And as a violinist, you know, you often practice standing up at home, but then you sit down for six hours and you're squashed into a box. And I think that's really, you know, it does limit you. It's very interesting when we play from memory or standing up, that the general sound of the orchestra is much bigger. And I actually have to spend quite a bit of time suppressing that so that we find Mm -hmm. the balance. You know, you tell a violinist Mm -hmm. to stand up, they think that they're Yehudi Menuhin suddenly and they play like that (laughs) as if they're playing a Brahms concerto you say well all you're doing is playing a a single note here can you be part of the first violin section instead Uh, and and you have to sort of completely find a new balance with it.
0: And I suppose acoustically as well I mean I know it sounds perhaps ridiculous and I'm not saying this is or isn't the case it's just to throw out there where you know, if you have a, a a violinist, for example, sitting down to play, and then they stand up, so they're perhaps a foot and a half, two feet mm-hmm. higher. The sound is 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 suddenly higher in the in the atmosphere, as it were. So probably that might, you know, have an influence on on the dynamic of the the sound as well. Who knows? Oh,
1: hugely, and and possibly the sound is less compact as well. You know, symphony orchestra is oh, yeah. a huge beast, so they they work towards compactness so you, mm. you the sound wants to sort of somehow meld together And when you have everyone standing up you then get a more diverse sound range and again what I work on is drawing the sound back to a central point together so it mm. it is it is different
0: mm. so with the memorization I mean how does this work in reality with the whole learning process I mean are the players going off and listening to their parts as well as to the whole, the, the whole score for months on end, or or do you have extra rehearsals together? I mean, what's the mechanics of all of this?
1: So they go off and rehearse. Um, they learn the, their individual part before the first rehearsal because trying to memorize as a group is is completely ineffectual Mm. Uh, they basically have to come knowing their part occasionally you find the odd one who uh, perhaps doesn't but um, (laughs) on the whole they they turn up (laughs) and they know 90 percent of of the part Um, and then it's about fine-tuning that and during the rehearsal process which is pretty standard in length we don't do much more rehearsal than than a, a normal okay. European orchestra, let's say, not a British one, but let's say yeah. we do, you know, two or three days of rehearsal. Um, mm. I never talk about memorization. We just talk about musical rehearsal. so it's never covering anything in order to make that better for memory. That's their job. Um, we don't discuss it. It's never. It's not interesting. What's interesting is the time that we have together to work on the music and yeah. people. Um, respond to that and and that is um I guess that's one of the major points of the process that they've put so much time into it and of their own energy they also feel that there is the point in spending 10-12 hours on a Beethoven symphony picking it apart listening trying out ideas in a way that's harder not impossible but harder to achieve in a in a just a normal process
0: mm. and
1: um, that for me is the defining reason why we do it actually is the musicality the depth of of understanding that they will go into and it's it's um, it's just more profound I think for us as players than it would be during a normal process.
0: Yeah it's really interesting have there been any mishaps at all in concerts where suddenly there has been a memory Lap somewhere in there. Well, ooh, so you're no. shaking your head. That's incredible. No, no, this is it's the That's fun thing. T- I, mean,
1: I think if you ask people, yeah, they'd probably say, um, "Oh gosh, I, I played an A natural there instead. But, I mean, in yeah, comparison to I mean, the standard mishaps that you will get anyway. Exactly. But I remember the, uh, you know, that, in a way, it's not because, uh, the, uh, the clarinetist said to me when we did Beethoven 5, he said, you know, I've played the first moon of Beethoven 5, 50 times and every time I play it I'm a little bit stressed about counting where to come in because it's quite a tricky movement actually to um, mm-hmm. play in the right place yes. believe it or not <laughs> and he said and I usually <laughs> might do something a little bit wonky but now I've memorized it I never will because it's just it's, it's there.
0: Interesting how yes. interesting and do you think that you may ask the symphony orchestras to try this or have you already? to try memorizing um <laughs> have yeah. another year long discussion
1: <laughs> uh, no i think um no is the basic answer to that i mean the problem with asking orchestras with fixed members is that they don't really get an option to say no and i think people need yeah. an option to say no to this it's a huge investment of time and people do the aurora projects because they're given the choice to accept it or not
0: <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely um uh the you've just or you're just about to start as the principal conductor of the Finnish radio orchestra, which is a major major post and and lots of congratulations for that because of course there's just such an incredible legacy and appreciation of um of Finnish music Finnish composers musicians audiences of course and um you know are you finding because you also conduct in so many other parts of the world and have residencies and your chief conductors and and principal conductors with several orchestras but are you finding different voices different sounds from these orchestras Um, because one of the things that seems to be quite prevalent at the moment is how um as you say we can all you know, experience music digitally. Um, You know, we can go on YouTube and we can see things, or we can buy a CD or or all sorts of things like that. And are you finding that orchestras are keeping their identity, their sound identity, or is this something that is becoming more generic? I don't know how your views are because you're still a, a very young conductor in the scheme of things and venturing into places that are 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 still uh, relatively new. Um, And I just wonder what your your take is with that?
1: Well, um, look, every orchestra has its unique sound. um, And although I try to avoid stereotypes about cultures or identities or nationalities, It is fair to say that all all the Finnish orchestras, all the Scandinavian orchestras are quite different in sound and personality from, say, a German orchestra. Mm. Uh, There's partly the repertoire they play, but it is something about their their characteristics as well. Mm. Um, And that is fairly obvious. Um, So, for example, with Finnish radio, who are a wonderful orchestra, and I'm extremely excited and very lucky about taking this job on, Um, rehearsals with them are incredibly efficient they Mm -hmm. are very focused very quiet Um, they they don't talk very much uh, which as a conductor is an enormous blessing actually so you will often find particularly as a young conductor that one of your chief jobs is acting as a sort of school teacher trying to quieten the noisy students you know Um, And there are set we all have had as conductors experiences where you feel that you've lost that battle and and you've lost the attention of an orchestra. Um, I I don't think that there's ever the case really with with an orchestra like the Finnish radio where anyone would feel that even if it doesn't go very well, you know, and that's an amazing, amazing um, thing. And they eat up contemporary music you know that's that's absolutely their bread and butter in a in a similar way to british orchestras they have a similar ability to sight read uh, to play rhythmically to play as an ensemble um but the interesting thing of course is is uh when you talk about these sort of sounds or national characteristics or you know whatever that individuality might be it's obviously the case over the last 100 years that um we uh, have more fluidity as we do with migration between countries, you know. Um, So, for example, in Finland, there's now a lot of players who are not Finnish themselves, who are not Finnish speakers. I expect that um, 60 years ago, that was very different. Uh, And that brings with it um, different styles of playing, different styles of orchestral experience. Um, So the same in the UK, you know, we have orchestras here with... uh, huge amounts of of european players and foreign players and that is just a wonderful thing isn't it and and uh, and i'm very pro the sharing of ideas generally i think we all get a huge amount out of that and that's why from my selfish point of view although i would i'd love conducting british orchestras i also get a huge amount out of going abroad because Mm. actually I think I can share with them in a very different way they treat me differently you know as a british conductor with a british orchestra there's a certain stigma there's a certain relationship but when i go to a foreign orchestra it's completely different and and i can share differently and they can share with me differently as well and i'm in finland i'm going to be the first conductor principal conductor there who's not Finnish and that's that's a very interesting thing for them whether it becomes a terrible thing or a good thing I don't (laughs) know but um but it will be different for them to to have someone who is not from their own language and from their own um culture uh in front of them you know on a very regular basis uh so I think it's such a cliche isn't it we all know that that music is a universal language and Uh, and it's the one thing that we can all speak together and and that is an incredible thing to be able to share actually with people and it's part of my job that I love.
0: Absolutely and there seems to be such a, a wonderful pool of young conductors you know throughout the world, really, and I don't know if this is just coincidence or or if if we're we're just suddenly noticing this or if we're uh you know really embracing the the this sort of youthful energy whereby many musicians have been brought up with such a diverse range of repertoire and, and not afraid to think about, um, you know, different types of music. And so the categorizations are, are not the most important thing. It's just, well, music is music and interesting artists are interesting artists, full stop. Um, is that something that you feel because obviously with the Aurora Orchestra, I mean the connection with so many art forms um it has been so prevalent in 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 so many of your performances, and therefore the outreach um has been absolutely fantastic
1: Oh, it certainly is and um, I think everyone in music has a wider perspective than they did perhaps a hundred years ago. As a conductor, you know there was a certain model that you were supposed to be—probably um, white male—and uh, you were probably supposed to go through a, a German Kapellmeister route, or you know, play for uh, as an opera repetiteur. And thank God that, that has changed, and and you know, people like Simon Rattle showed that you could be a young conductor. Uh, and then we've had people showing that you can be a woman conductor, and that you can be a black conductor, and this um, is so obvious. But uh, but people have needed to to break the molds on that, and mm. along with that, you get, of course, people from all around the world who who have really interesting and diverse musical loves and traditions and ways of approaching music. It may not even be that that you know they have a different knowledge of of say a different type of music but it just may be that they have an interesting take on music or how to present music and there's so many conductors i look at now i don't know people like uh, theodore carensis who's got an incredibly idiosyncratic view of music making and how it should go and what how you can present it and you don't have to love it you don't have to hate it whatever it is unique and it's not unique for the sake of being unique it is just unique and that's that is so valuable for um the growth of music and we have to keep as a system you know we have to keep developing and expanding and pushing at the box and um not for just for the sake of you know what people say of attracting audiences i'm not particularly worried about that but for the sake of of life for this mm. art form to grow it has to do that mm. and that's of course connected with contemporary music you know pushing as much as possible on the future of music as opposed to just looking at the canon which is so mm. dear and beloved to all of us but um yeah. you know it, people are thinking a lot more about these issues than they were I guess mm. 50 years ago
0: And do you think that uh, this whole lockdown situation has perhaps? pushed the orchestral scene um into thinking rethinking reevaluating uh analyzing their situation their audiences um the the repertoire they they play how they put things on do you think that this has been a a, a bit of a a nudge to to think well What are we? What do we provide, you know, to society, to our communities and so on? Um, You know, I I just wonder if this actually is an opportunity um, with all the doom and gloom that we um, relate COVID to. um, But actually there's always a yin and yang to everything or or I, I certainly believe that and, and I wonder whether this is an opportunity not just for orchestras but for lots of different industries and different parts of industries. But um I just I, I'm somehow excited about how orchestras will explore other avenues and veins and paths and so on.
1: It's a very interesting question and we talk about it, actually, within the Aurora team. Uh, to what extent will there be long-lasting change? Uh, or we, perhaps, you know, let's say we get a vaccine, we come out of this next summer. Will everything just flick back to normal with with the exception of probably an economic recession, the likes of which we've not seen before? Um, who knows? It's a really interesting question. It's certainly, from my point of view, um, it's asked me, the virus has asked of me lots and lots of questions about, personally, what music do I want to be doing and how do I deliver it? With Aurora, what is our reason for being here? Um, and, and I think for lots of, for example, orchestras, certain questions around localization versus internationalization which is a really Mm -hmm. vital one particularly with climate change traveling this this old concept of international touring and orchestras flying off to play the Brahms second symphony in in Asia uh, with a famous conductor and then the Asian orchestra comes over here to play Brahms Second Symphony with their famous conductor, you know, <laughs> and you think, well, what's the point of that? We all you've managed there is to release seven megatons of CO two into the air, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, that kind of thing versus what is has shown up a little bit during, say, lockdown, which is a nice idea. I don't know whether people will capitalize it upon it, but the localization, so you know, people connecting more with. What do people need in my community? Is it playing music in care homes around where I am? Um, is it, uh, you know, giving concerts that are outdoor to the community because that's their way of accessing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so thinking more on a community basis because lockdown has forced us to. Whether that has long-lasting change, I, I don't know, but I think it's certainly asked a lot of questions and you'll see a huge amount of change you know, for example, the big Arts Council Emergency Fund that has just come through, a lot of the organisations have been awarded money, a lot of which will go towards big digital initiatives, streaming concerts, um, accessibility to digital content. Now, that's a really interesting question. And again, I sit, you know, I I ask a lot of questions of myself about that. What's the value of creating a a product that is... um, Sort of filmed, but looks like a traditional concert. When perhaps you should be creating something that's more specifically created for digital online content that has a, a little more around it or another way of accessing. I don't know. All those all those questions are very very interesting and pertinent ones. But certainly, it's unlocked a whole um, discussion around digital content, which is very important for music.
0: It it is hugely important and hugely important for. The, the youngsters whereby technology is you know like an extension of their limbs really and the the beating of their heart almost so it it is interesting i my personal uh, view on this is that uh, digital art in general will become um a, a a specialised, it will become its own art form. And I mm. don't think it will be enough simply to film a concert and then mm. put that out on YouTube or whatever. I don't mm. think that's enough to, for people to gain the emotional long-term pool um, of wanting to follow something. So, mm. I mean, there's all sorts of things. But I, I, I think it's it's a very interesting time, and time will be the aspect that we need in order to see how things how things follow through. So it's really mm. interesting to get your thoughts on that. So we we collaborated, um Nick, oh, was it three years? I'm terrible with dates. Three years ago, four I, years ago? Oh, I can't remember.
1: Actually, oh, I terrible. can remember. Um It was because my <laughs> son had just been born, so it was four years ago.
0: Four years ago. And we played Dream Machine by Michael Doherty, the American composer, and this was his... Uh, second percussion concerto had you had you conducted a percussion concerto before seemed as though you had because you just did it so splendidly oh. but um whether you had
1: i must have done but i can't even th- i'm sure yes i've done stuff, i've done quite a lot of repertoire with Colin Curry actually oh yes we've yeah. done a big recording with the Halle um of various pieces oh brilliant um but i i'm sure i've done quite a few things yeah
0: fantastic yeah yeah So how is it to have this barrage of instruments at the front of the platform, you know, as opposed to a more familiar violin or piano or voice or trumpet even, you know? Does this affect your um, listening skills as regards to balance, to working out, um, you know, where the sounds are coming from? I mean, I remember you know, years ago when percussion concertos were quite new and conductors would look at the score, obviously, and uh, follow the rhythm of the solo percussion, but not the sound colour, and which is quite interesting. But the more experienced conductors have become and the more repertoire that's been uh, written, they are understanding much, much more about, you know, if they see a symbol written on the score and a woodblock, that those are two completely different sound colours and therefore they have to be dealt with quite differently, you know. So has, has, you know, do you find that conducting a percussion soloist is quite different to conducting a a violinist or something?
1: Um, No, I guess. I should have asked a
0: yes or no question, there we go.
1: Uh, (laughs) You're going to get a yes or no answer. No, because essentially all it is is... I mean, it's obviously a more diverse range of sounds than the violinist could ever hope to produce. But um, essentially what it is, is um, notes turned into sound and how they communicate with the diverse group of instruments that I have in front of me, which in many ways can match in diversity <laughs> what you you could do. Because, you know, I'd, I'd, for example, in the Doctor piece, you know, it's a big orchestra, so you have you have everything. You have strings and wind and brass, um, and I think there's even some orchestral percussion, isn't there, in mm. that piece. Mm. Is that right? Um uh yes. so um no, I think I mean I absolutely adore percussion. I I found it fascinating. I, like the concept of someone taking so much care over um essentially, you know, the acoustic properties of, of what these uh pieces of wood or metal, whatever they are, can achieve. And that's sort of what I'm doing in my job as a conductor. Um, I don't hit anything, but what I'm trying to do is carve out sound from the air and mm. show them away. In, in many ways, um, it's not a dissimilar gestural technique from what you learn as percussionists. It's the, I would say conducting is the most similar gestural technique to uh, percussion. So if you watch a timpanist play um, just a single note on a timpani, it's got a very similar trajectory of speed as to a conductor giving a downbeat, or an upbeat before a downbeat, I should say. Um, and that's what you learn as a conductor, this this thing of needing to speed through a beat so there's a a, a clear sort of click point where the fastest point of the beat is now that point on a timpani is where you then strike the instrument but it's a thing of beauty to watch so watching a percussionist is is a thing of beauty as you know um mm. seeing them hit an instrument is a very similar trajectory uh so shaping that and following that of a percussionist is is i always find it visually and um you know audibly fascinating and i love doing it because uh you know you have such a wide palette of sounds that that we're pushed to try and match that with the orchestra.
0: Mm. Do you think, um, or have you ever thought about learning sign language in order to think about the placement of, of movement within air and and how they place tenses and and how they emphasise dynamics um, through the use of sign language? Is that something you've ever that considered? That is
1: fascinating. Uh, well, to be honest, it's something I know shamefully little about and would be very interested to learn more but that the concepts of um creating dynamics through movement is a really interesting uh, f- phenomenon isn't it that that you can mm-hmm. do that so easily within sign language but mm-hmm. as i say it's it's not something that i um am well versed in
0: you could learn as a family I, there's ex- something for know, the kids right.
1: <laughs> it's a very important idea
0: Oh, Nick, well, look, I realise that I've taken up a lot of your time because we had a slight hiccup at the beginning of this um, where I somehow had failed to manage to connect with you and you very kindly saved the day, oh. um, which I very much appreciate, but it it, it did it's eat been a great a, pleasure. a little bit of time. But I'm going to ask one last question, Nick. If you could be stranded on a desert island, which piece of music or what sound would you like there with
1: you oh wow Mm. um right i didn't know i was going to get that i you know what i think it might be a sound um because a piece of music however much i love it after a while would start to grate and i'd feel nostalgic and sad there is a specific sound that i um equate with a, a baby and it's really interesting um with all our three children we're <laughs> desperate to get them to sleep. We've used um as as lots of parents seem to think of white noise, you know, which is um well, manifests itself in lots of different types of of sort of background noise and that's supposed to make your baby sleep better. So you try anything, don't you? How and there's lovely. a parti- particular uh, white noise app that we use and we've always used a sound called mountain river. So when we've had our babies in our rooms, I've had to get used to sleeping with the sound of a mountain river. And at the beginning, the first few weeks of a baby, I'm always like, oh my God, can you turn that mountain river off? And by the end of it, after a few months, when the baby leaves the room, I've been unable to sleep because I've missed the mountain river. And the funny thing was, we went, we went for a walk in the Lake District with our family um, last, when was it? In August. And we took our baby out in the sling on the walk. And she was crying a bit. And I said, oh, she's probably sleepy and blah, blah, blah. We walked a bit <laughs> onwards. And then do you know what we came across? Um, an actual mountain river. And it sounded <gasps> exactly like a mountain river. And it went, and we had to walk along the banks of the mountain river. Within 30 seconds, she was asleep. How It was ex- astonishing, and it was absolutely that that did it. She just knew that was her cue, and she went to sleep. So I'm sure I would sit and on my desert island and have a good uh, sleep <laughs> at that point, which is what you want, isn't it?
0: <laughs> well, we're all listening to nature more profoundly at the moment, so I think it's a lovely thing to have on a desert island, and maybe we can all just put it in our own homes and relax yeah. a little bit yeah. more. <laughs> Very weird. <laughs> get a bit sleepy there nick thank you so much indeed we really you know appreciate everything and um and for for you giving us your time like this and it's been really fascinating and i just wish you all the very best in your family and and certainly with your new post in uh finland so that's really really exciting and of course all the fantastic things that aurora are up to um i just think it's one of the the absolute gems that that we have in this country um, in order to give us all the excitement that we need um, through the exploration of all kinds of repertoire, so thank you for that
1: Well, thank you for your kind words (laughs) and lovely to see you again
0: (laughs) Thank you Nick I would like to say a very special thank you to Audio Network for supporting my podcast Thank you so much for listening See you in my next one